Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. You know, I've oftentimes wondered how many times he's replayed that night over and over again in his mind. There was so much that was said, so much that was done that you couldn't possibly expect him to understand everything in the moment. It had to be weeks or I wonder if even months afterwards that he found himself still going back to the same scene, the exact same words going over and over again in his mind until they began to click in. The entire night was set up sort of cloak and dagger style, different than any way they'd ever entered into a city. Two of the disciples were were picked and had to go and join with the crowd and just kind of wander through the crowd until they saw a man with a water jar that he was carrying. And then they were to follow that man with the water jar to the house without saying a word. Once they found out which home he went into, they were supposed to step up and simply say, the master wants to know if the room's ready. And I'm sure they were looking up and down the street to make sure that they weren't being seen, that that no one was hearing those words. With that one statement, they were ushered into the house into what is called the upper room, where a table was already prepared. There they would finish the preparations and At nightfall, the rest of the disciples and Jesus would steal in under cover of darkness to meet with them. The city was packed, swelled to probably 40 or 50 times its normal population. You see, every good Jewish family wanted to be there in Jerusalem for the Passover meal. This was a celebration of their their redemption from bondage in Egypt. It was a celebration of their, their nationality, even though they were oppressed, and they were occupied by the Romans at this time. The travelers had been streaming in for days, and every available space inside the city was taken up, and all the flat land outside the city had people camping on it, tents, makeshift lean-tos, so they could be close enough to be near the celebration. There was a fever pitch of patriotism, of nationalism, and the thoughts of freedom. For 1,440 years, they have been celebrating this meal. You see, you have to go back that far, that far back to where you remember the time when your people were slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. God had sent Moses to repeatedly tell them, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. And then plague after plague after plague Finally, the patience of God was pushed, and to get his people back, he told them, kill a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost to your homes. My spirit's going to come through, and any house that doesn't have the blood over the doorpost, the oldest male in that home will die. And in that night, there's wailing and there's crying and anguish across the nation of Egypt as the Jews huddle in their homes and hear the destruction outside 
while their houses are passed over. The next day, Pharaoh said, get up and get out. And they've been celebrating it annually ever since. Ever since, each year they get a lamb and they slaughter it. They cook it over an open flame. And then on the table, there's, there, there's a little dish of salt water to remind them of the tears that were shed during that time that they were in Egypt. There's bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of being enslaved. There's a, another little bowl made up of nuts and, and dates and, and cinnamon to remind them of the mortar that was used when they were building the projects for Pharaoh in Egypt. A lamb that was killed for God to pass over and save them. And there'd be four cups of wine on the table, and each one of the adults would partake of each one of those four cups. But there'd also be a fifth cup, the Elijah cup. And that cup would not be touched. It was there to, to symbolize a, a, a future redemption that was to come. This would be celebrated for 1,400 years, and God picked that time and that supper and that week in all history to say, it's go time. 1,440 years later, the beginning of that week, they had put Jesus on a donkey's colt, and he rode into the city. And the, the Jews came, and they took, they took their cloaks, and they took the palm branches. They threw them down on the front of him and along the boulevard there. And they yelled, Hosanna, Hosanna, save him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were tired of Roman rule. And it came to that night when the entire nation celebrates the dinner in exactly the same way, with the, the same prayers, the same songs, the, the same script, the same recital. But in one house, in an upper room, Jesus flipped the script. He told the guys, I am the lamb that's come to take away the sins of the world. All of history has been waiting for this night. And then almost like a grenade, he pulls the pin and he rolls it out, and they're shocked, blast, and this wasn't what they were expecting because the next thing he says, one of you will betray me. No one saw it coming. I know 2,000 years later, it's easy for us to sit here and say, oh, it must have been, must have been that, that Judas guy, that, that beady-eyed, you know, pointy-nosed guy with the tail coming out from under his tunic. No. They trusted Judas. John tells us that Judas carried the money bag. And I don't know about you, but if I'm in a group of 12, 13 guys and we're traveling around and we got to pull our money and put it with one, I'm going to, the one that I trust most, that's who's going to be carrying the money bag as far as I'm concerned. But to their shock and the horror around the table, Jesus called out Judas and said, I know what you've been up to. And Judas will get up and he'll run out of the upper room. There'll be a small dialogue and then Peter decides to speak. Well, we're studying the book of 1 Peter, the epistle that he wrote. And before we jump in to what he writes in that epistle, I want to go back 30 years before he wrote the book. To that night, 30 years before, to what he heard at that table. Jesus told him, he said, tonight I'll hand myself over to them. I'll be betrayed, I'll be mocked, I'll be beaten, I'll be spit upon, I'll be, I'll be crucified. And in three days, Easter. That night, Peter missed it. And 30 years later, we'll come to his book, to his epistle. But first, we need to go back to that night, into that upper room. And I think before we get to what Peter is writing, what we're studying today, 
We got to go back to where he first heard it. And I believe he missed it. We find the dialogue in, in John's Gospel, chapter 13. Jesus had just called out Judas. Judas got up, ran out of the upper room. Now Jesus left the disciples. And I bet that you could cut the tension in the room with a knife. They all know that Jesus has said three times that he's going to die in this city. They all know that outside this room, out there, there are people that have put a price on Jesus' head. That's why they had to do the cloak and dagger thing and sneak into here. Two guys had to whisper about the room to the guy with the water jug and come in so they could pull off this dinner in privacy. And now Jesus stood there as every family in the nation is celebrating the meal in exactly the same way, and he's using his own script. He's taking all of history. This man has the audacity to say that the entire Old Testament, all the laws, all the prophets have been about him. He takes the Passover meal, and he says, you've been waiting for this. I'm the lamb. I'm the cup of the promise. I'm the redeemer. And this dialogue happens starting there in John chapter 13, verse 31. It says, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. I realize that's a lot of glorify, glorifying going on there. It's just his way of saying in Hebrew terms to a bunch of Hebrew guys sitting around the table whose, whose eyes have to, be, have to be wide, who just heard that one of the 12, the guy that they trusted with the money bag, is going to betray Jesus. And he has to have their attention here, and he wants them to know God's about to do his plan. And let me tell you, the Son of God is about to fulfill his purpose. And this is what the Father and I have been about all along. Make no mistake about this night. This is the entire plan of God. And they've got to be staring bug-eyed at him, chills running up and down their spine, and he says, here's the plan. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, but just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And a new command you know, here's the program. He's, he's teeing it up. A new command I give you. Here's what it's all about. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Count them there. Love one another. How many times? Three times. Three times. Here's the plan. You're going to know if you're really my follower. You're not going to know if you're really a Christian or not by the way that you start loving people. End of story. That's the plan. You don't have to wonder, am I, am I a Christian because I go to church or, or, am I, or because I mark a box or on a census or because of where I was born or because of the way my parents raised me? He goes, here's the plan. You're going to know if your life's really changed by God if you're following him. If you love people differently than you used to. That's the plan. And Peter decides to speak. I love it when Peter decides to speak. Reminds me of myself sometimes. <laughs> Peter said, um, um, Lord, um, where are you going? Jesus had just given them the plan of God. And Peter's like, but, 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 but wait a minute, you said you're going to go somewhere. And you said we can't, we can't go with you. Come on, Peter, the entire plan of God's being rolled out. And, no, 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 but, but I want to know. 
I want to know, you said you're leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? Where are you going? I've been following you for three years. I left my boat. I left my nets. You know, when, when the girl was sick and died and, and you took only three of us in the room, I was one of the ones that went with you. When you went up on the mountaintop with Elijah and Moses, you know, I was one of the three up there with you. You know, I'm in the inner circle, Jesus. If you're going someplace, I'm going with you. So before your new plan, your new command, what up? Where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. I don't have time to explain it, Peter, where I'm going. Your little brain can't probably understand all the things that are going right. I don't want you to worry about it right now. There's going to be a later, later date when you can come and able, be able to join me. But that's not good enough for Peter. Peter said, Lord, why can't we follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. What do you mean later? I got my bag packed. Or if you're talking about you're going to die, well, I'm going to die with you, Jesus. I'm going to be right there with you. I'll defend you until the death. I'm ready. Do you think he meant it? I do. I think he meant it. I think this fisherman is passionate. I think this guy, after three years, has, has seen enough of what a real man is like, that this common dock worker, this, this guy that used to row a wooden ship for a living, who, who threw heavy nets, who has these big man hands, you know, with calluses on them, I think he's seen enough that he says, wait a minute, if you're talking about dying and you're going somewhere, I'm ready to die with you. Bold statement. But the next line kicks him in the gut. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. In the next couple chapters, Jesus is going to talk about heaven in chapter 14, about the Holy Spirit. The disciples will speak, Philip will talk to him, Thomas will talk to him, but you know who doesn't? Say anything else in that upper room after this? Peter. And I look at that line and I say, whoa, Jesus. I know things are tense because you're about to die, but you just slammed the guy. Couldn't you have done it a little bit softer? Couldn't you just say, Peter, I know you love me, but you know, things are going to probably be rougher tonight than what you, what you think they're going to be. Why just call him out in front of the other, the other ten? That night, Peter had all the passion about following God, but he didn't have a maturity to stick with it. And Peter missed the whole plan. Jesus was trying to say, here's my new command, and Peter was just going, hey, wherever you're going, I'm going to go with you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, Peter, knock it off. Settle down. As I said, there'll be more conversation. Jesus will teach about the Holy Spirit in heaven. They'll sing some songs, and then they'll head out to the Mount of Olives, which is just across the ravine from the city. Jesus doesn't want what's getting ready to go down to go on within the city with all the crowds around because they'll probably be rioting and there'll probably be people to get, to get hurt. So they come outside to a lonely place, and, and sure enough, when the guards come, Peter goes into action. He takes a stand, he grabs a sword, and he swings, and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. He missed. And Jesus heals the ear of the high priest's servant. But Peter realizes, hey, I'm not a very good soldier, and so he panics and he runs. He leaves Jesus by himself in the garden, and Jesus is arrested and taken back into the city to the high priest's house for a mock trial. And somewhere in the darkness, Peter comes to his senses. 
He's running, and he realizes, wait a minute, the torches aren't after me. They're after him. i got to go defend him. I told him I'd defend him. I, I, I've, I've got to go, go die with him. I've got to see what, if I can get in there. And he makes his way back close enough to where the, the mock trial is being held that his face is seen around a campfire. And sure enough, in that atmosphere, in the enemy's territory, he's noticed as being one of the disciples, and he does what? He denies it. When he's called out as being a Galilean because of his accent, because of the way he talks, he'll say he's not. And when he's asked point blank, aren't you a follower of that guy Jesus? He starts swearing up and down he doesn't even know the Christ, and they'll leave him alone. And at that time, his alarm clock goes off. The rooster crows. Thirty years later, his maturity will catch up with his passion. Thirty years later, he'll sit down to write a letter to people who are being oppressed, Christians that are being persecuted, and he'll come back to these words that he missed that night. He'll come back to the new command and to that plan and go, guys, this is what I didn't get. I was full of passion and, and desire, and I said I wanted to follow God, but man, I didn't get it there. And step by step, he'll write this letter, and he'll, he'll walk us through what we're supposed to do, what he was supposed to do. 1 Peter, we left off in verse 21. We're going to pick it up in verse 22. I know that's a long introduction, but I think we needed to set the table there. If you're joining us, we're, we've been looking at, at, at Peter's uh, sitting down and writing this letter to encourage the church. Uh, and Peter's kind of like an ADD fisherman. He has a hard time you know, following. And he's writing this letter with the help of a friend who's got much better penmanship and use more fancy words than what he could. And it's been 30 years after that night in the upper room, 30 years since he saw Jesus crucified and then later rise from the grave three days. And Jesus walked with Peter for over a month, 30 years since he saw Jesus ascend into heaven, 30 years now, finally he started to get what the plan was all about. He, like so many others, thought Jesus was supposed to come and, and set up a castle, a kingdom, an army to kick Roman butt. The Jews would have their own freedom, their own capital, their, their own nation. Now, 30 years later, he's come to realize God came to set us free physically, spiritually, eternally, but not politically. Oh, how he missed that. 30 years later, he got to see what the plan was all about. And in the first 21 verses of his letter, he just says, Do you remember what God has done? How much he loved you, that he sent his son to die for you so that you could be forgiven of your sin. He sent his Holy Spirit to come into our lives in order to, to change us. Do you remember that we serve a, a living God, not an old religion, not ancient scripts? We have a God that lives in us and through us today. Last week, we looked at, at what it says about God setting us apart, making us holy. He made us holy according to his purpose. Not a perfection we're trying to, or we're striving to obtain, but something he's already given us the moment that we're adopted into his family. The moment we came in and that we said to God, I'm done with my life. Forgive me. I'm all yours. You're on the throne of my life. He made us sons and daughters. And now he says, let me show you. Let me tell you how to grow in that. Let me tell you how to grow to spiritual maturity, Peter says. In verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, see the echoes from John chapter 13? Love one another deeply from the heart. 
Now that you've been brought into this truth, now that you know who God is and, and what he's done, you've been brought into his family, love your brothers and sisters with the real love, a pure love. There's at least four ways here, four differences, that, four places where the, this, this should be seen, the difference in our lives once we're Christ followers. The difference that's going to take place if we say that we're followers of Christ. The first thing I want you to write down, it's in your life notes there, but the differences that should be seen, it should be seen, number one, in our love. Peter skipped right over it that night in the upper room when Jesus said, here's how you're going to know that you're following me, by your love for one another. You're going to love one another deeply. You're going to love one another differently. That's how you're going to know if you're a Christian or not. You're going to be able to see it by the way you love others. You ever want a metric? Am I a Christian? Am I following God? Well, how your love has changed compared to how you would do it if left to your own devices, that tells you if God's in your life or not. He goes, that's going to be your measuring stick. It's going to be clear. But Peter missed it that night. He's caught up on, well, what do you mean? Where are you going, Jesus? Why can't I go with you? 30 years later, he's got this Christian life down. He's walked for three decades, and he goes, man, let me tell you the difference God makes in the way that it changes how we love other people. Verse 23, for or because, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Because you've been born again. Because you have a spiritual birth. Walt was once born of perishable, something temporarily, something that, that won't last. Once I was born of the seed of Walter and Joanne East. I believe I got 23 chromosomes from each one of them. Somehow Walter and Joanne East came together and they made little Walter Eugene East II. You need to mark it because this is probably the only time you'll ever hear me use my middle name. Okay? He goes, once you were born of humans... You were born into the East clan, and that was something. That was perishable. That has a shelf life, but that's not going to last forever. But because you've been born anew of imperishable, of something that's eternal, because now you came and said, God, I'm done with my life. I understand, God, that you love me in spite of me. You gave your son to die on the cross for me to pay any debt that I would owe you so my sins could be forgiven. I was born into the family of God born again. You know, I had nothing to do with being born of Walter and Joannes. That was their decision. I also realize it's nothing that I've done to be born into the kingdom of God, into God's family. It's simply God's great mercy and his grace. He goes, now that you've been born into the family of God, you're going to act like the family of God. Just like when I was born into the East family, there were certain expectations of how I would act. He goes, now you're born into the family of God, not into something perishable, but imperishable. Because of that, you're going to love your brothers and sisters the way that dad wants you to love your brothers and sisters. That's how you know whether or not you're in the family. Verse 24, he continues. He, he, he illustrates a point here. He says, for all men are like grass and all their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Peter goes, don't you know that the best a man or woman can ever do is like the grass? 
The best glory you can ever have, the best of your title, the best of your position, the best of your bank account, your finances, your assets, all that is fleeting. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, it's temporary. Everything we're striving so hard for here and now to achieve is temporary. Just think of when he wrote this, and I believe it, pro it proves the point. He's writing at a time when the Roman Empire was dominant across the known world. He's writing at a time when that Roman Empire was oppressing Christians. The, the great Caesar himself, Nero, was, was, was persecuting Christians. Well, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you have had to worry the past week about oppression from Romans? Anybody? No. Why? Because that empire is long gone. The greatest man in the world at that time, Caesar, you find yourself waking up cursing him? Maybe other politicians, but do you find yourself waking up cursing him? And that's not good either, though, okay? I'm not, I'm not condoning that, okay? But that's a different message. Get last week's message, okay? That was in last week's message. The greatest man in the world at the time. But what are we studying today? The Word of God. Great men and women have risen and fallen. Great empires have come and gone. Nations have been birthed and completely wiped off the map, and the Word of God is still at work and still being taught and still moving. Guys, let me tell you why I'm writing this, he says. Because God is eternal. His Word is eternal. And you're in the family of God, and that is something that is eternal. You are eternal. He goes, I'm telling you how to hold on to that which is lasting instead of fighting so hard for the stuff that passes. He walked with Jesus for three years. He saw the miracles. Peter himself passed out the fish and the bread. He was there for all the teaching, yet he missed what happened, what Jesus was saying in that upper room that night. Thirty years later, he wrote, sits down to write the Christians, a church that's, that's looking at the world and the empire around them, a church that feels like they're outmanned, outgunned, outnumbered. They're beaten down, and it seems like God isn't showing up for them. And Peter writes, and he says, May I remind you, what you're born into, the things that are going to count. Don't, don't get sucked up into the perishable, the temporary, the things that aren't going to last. That has nothing to do with eternity and the things that count. The absolute best that your life has ever dreamed of is like the grass that gets mowed, blows away, or burned up. Hold on and focus to the things that 20 years, 200 years, 2,000 years, 2 million years, 200 million years are going to last. And he goes, because of that, we love people differently. Because the only things in life that I will ever touch or you will ever touch that are eternal are people and the Word of God. People and the Word of God. It's the only things that, that we'll touch that 200 years from now are going to have some impact. Every person is eternal. Where they spend eternity is determined by what they do with Jesus Christ. Jesus' new plan, he was trying to tell Peter and the boys there in the upper room, is that the way you love them, the way you show your love to them, is going to introduce them to the truth of God so that they can be brought in to the family. Peter just wanted to know, where are you going, Jesus? How come I can't go with you? And Jesus says, your job right now, Peter, is to help me populate heaven. 
You'll get there. You just focus upon taking people with you. And so now he walks us into and into what we need to do as a result of this. Therefore is the first word of chapter 2, and you've heard it said before, every time there's a therefore, you have to say, what's that therefore? You take it, you draw a line up to what it was just said. Because of all that I've just said, because of chapter 1, Peter comes to chapter 2, and he goes, therefore, because you've been made a Christian, because you've been born again into a new family, because you know God is eternal, and because you know that he has a plan, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, of every kind. Well, that's a short sentence, but I tell you, there's a lot packed into that sentence as you're going to see here. What do we do with that? And I think he's bringing out some things here that, that we need to look at closely, uh, not only in, a, in the context of here, but in our own lives. And we're going to break it down and see, see the difference that should be seen in our lives here. He, he goes, okay, the difference should be seen in how we love. Secondly, the difference should be seen in our speech. Should be seen in our speech. At least two of these things have to do with how we talk to others or how we talk about others. He goes, your speech is going to be different now that you're in the family of God. What you say, how you say it, how you talk about people, why you talk about people is going to be different. Your love and your speech is going to be different, Peter's saying. Thirdly, your attitude is going to be different. You're going to have a different attitude towards people and towards things. Yes, where do you get that from? Well, look at the list. Peter says, because of all that, get rid of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Can you imagine? What if we did this? What if we actually took this seriously and did it? What, what a crazy thought that a church would, would ever get together, read the Word of God, and actually do what it says. We're going to break down this list, and I'm going to ask you to do a self-test Later, I'm going to ask you to do an evaluation on this. But what if we took each one of these that he's talking about and looked at our own lives? Go through the five of them. And if you have one, I'm going to ask you today to get rid of it, to ask God to help you get rid of it. But let's look at what they are here, first off. Malice. What is malice? Well, malice is simply this, a desire to cause harm or ill will to another person. And that's what I put in your life notes. It's on, it's on there. This morning as I was going back over my notes and thinking about this, I, I probably would have worded it a little bit different. It's not just cause harm. I would say cause or wish harm or ill will towards another person. Because I think that meets the spirit of what, what he's trying to say, what God's trying to teach us. Does this sound familiar? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. Let me just say that if, if this is God's word, Peter says, because you're a child of God, you will love people differently. Here's the things that you've got to get rid of in your life. Number one, if there's any ill will towards other people, towards another person, you need to get rid of it. If you say, man, I want that person to get hit by a bus today. Nope, that's malice. Come on, you've thought these things before. Is there someone in your life that you desire harm to come to? Is there someone that you have so much resentment, so much anger, so much bitterness towards them that you want to see them hurt? You want to see them suffer? You want to see them fail? This is where, you know, someone's going to say, oh, well, but you don't understand. No, 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 no. God doesn't qualify it. God doesn't say unless this or let. No, God doesn't qualify it. He says get rid of malice. Here's the beauty of the Christian life. The moment I become a child of God, justice is dad's problem. It's not my problem. Getting even, getting back, 
Eye for eye, tooth for tooth isn't my problem. That's the Father's problem. God says, let me bring justice. And God is so much better at it than you or me. Yeah, I still struggle sometimes. The person cuts me off on the 10 freeway or the, the person's driving 45 in the left-hand lane. And when I go to pass them, you know, they, they, they give me that, that signal with the, the one, the, they, they're saying they're number one or something. I don't know. Peter says, get rid of all malice. Number two, deceit. Deceit is dishonest behavior meant to fool or trick someone. Do you have dishonest behavior in your life that's meant to trick or fool somebody? Are there finances in your life where you're, you're, you're being deceitful so the IRS doesn't know about it, so your employer doesn't, doesn't have to know about it, or, or so that your, your, your spouse, whether it's your current spouse or an ex-spouse, doesn't know about it? Is there any area in your life where you're doing stuff in a dishonest way to, to simply trick or fool someone? And Peter goes, you're a child of God. In the family of God, there's no deceitfulness. You live above board in these areas. Number three, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to be what you are not or pretending to believe what you don't. You're calling yourself a Christian, a, a follower of Christ, when you know that your life, you're, you're really not. You're, he's just some advisor. I noticed this over the years as a, as a military chaplain. I'd meet someone. I, I wouldn't ask them where they'd go to church. I'd ask them, tell me about your faith background. Because too often, it's just easy for them to, to, to say something like the time, kind of the default I found was, you know, someone told, they, they knew they weren't Catholic, they knew they weren't Jewish, they knew they weren't Buddhist or Hindu, so they'll say, I'm Baptist. That was, kind of the safe, that was kind of the safe option for them, I'm Baptist. Yeah, there's a lot of Baptists, and there's a lot of different types of Baptists, because Baptists like to fight a lot, I am a recovering Baptist, but, <laughs> but it's, not, it's not about just by default, I was born in America, so I must be a Christian. God calls for a decision. He calls for an action on our part to embrace, to faith, to accept the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Some people, you know, they think God's just a magic genie that's here to, to bless them, but, but they're going to live the rest of their life under their own word. You're calling God your God when in reality your life says, no, your own thoughts and your own ways are your God. Or the things that, that I want to listen to, fine. I'll, I'll take this part of God's word, but then I'm going to choose over here to do differently because that's my life. He's saying that's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. Any of, area of your life where you say, I call myself a Christian, but I'm going to live in a way that I want to, not the way that God tells me to or God shows me or God instructs me to, that's hypocrisy. If I say Christ, the word of God, is my God, and I'm still living life my way, I'm a hypocrite. Number four, Peter says, get rid of envy. Now, most of us think of envy as simply wanting what someone else has. And, and you know, it's okay to want someone, what someone else has in a righteous way. We're going to look at this in a minute, the difference. If I look up to someone as a role model, if I look up to someone who's in my field of, of, of work, of endeavor, and I want, to, I want to be like that person, that's okay to do that. But the envy that Peter's talking about here, it's a resentful awareness of the advantage that someone else has. A resentful awareness, and it's joined with the desire to possess that same advantage. See, there's a difference there. It's okay to, to say, I, I like that and I, I want to be successful. I wanna, I'd love to be president of the bank someday or, or president of the United States or something like that. But if you're resenting it, if you're resenting it and you're wanting you want to grab it for yourself, that's what he's talking about here. 
Do we have people in our lives where not only do I resent them because they have it, but I've desired to have the same thing? Peter says, how can you be in this new command, this new program of God of loving others when some of the others in your life you're resentful of? Or for simply, you know, having the, the thing that you want, that you want to have in your own life. Because you understand how that's, that's going to war with the eternal person in you, you're going to be part of the kingdom. You're part of God's kingdom. But you're not going to have the influence that you need if you're resentful in this way, if you have this kind of envy. That's not to be in a child of God. Are there people or places or things that you have envy for? And then lastly, slander. Slander, to make false statements that cause people to have a bad opinion of someone else. Back when, when we were in school, we called it trash talking. Trash talking. It's okay, I guess we're playing basketball to trash talk. Like, but I'm talking about, you know, the gossip that went on in the cafeteria. And you know what? I, I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but oftentimes, I think I'm back in middle school sometimes here in the park. You know, it reminds me of middle school cafeteria, the groups, the cliques, the people, the people talking about one another, the gossip, the, the hearsay that goes on. It's just like we've reverted back to our adolescent years. And I say that in charity and, and love. But I, there's slander goes on. Slander's trash talking. Are there, are there people in your life or are there family members or people at work or at school or in the neighborhood or, or here in, in, in your park that, were, that you love to tear down or you love to just, you just can't wait to share what you heard about them? It's, it's interesting sometimes. You know, a couple months ago when, when my family was sick, it was interesting the things that got back to me. Like, And I could trace from this person to this person to this person. And I knew the source. And some of them sit here. That's okay. I love them, I love them anyway because that's what God calls me to do. So Peter got caught up that night, not in the plan, but where are you going, Jesus? Let me go with you. And 30 years later, he now gets how this works, and he writes, let me tell you how you're going to be different by your love, by your speech, by your attitude towards people. Here's what it has to look like. Here's the things that we need to get rid of. And in verse 2, he says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted the Lord is good. You know, babies are cute, aren't they? Especially that one I showed you on the screen a while ago. <laughs> But babies need to grow up. You don't want the baby to stay a baby. You want to grow up. Babies are loud. Babies cry. Babies poo their diapers. You, you, you want babies to grow up and be able to take care of themselves. Babies take a lot of work, don't they? Well, God wants us to grow up to spiritual maturity as well. Peter says you want to grow as a Christian, then crave the things of God. Crave the word of God. Take it into your life. Let it change you by getting rid of these things I just talked about, by loving people so that you may grow in your salvation. Now that you've tasted that he is a good God, he says this is how spiritual maturity happens. It's a difference in our love, in our speech, in our attitude, and finally it's a difference in our desires. Our love, our speech, our attitude, our desires change so that we're not craving the temporary things. We're craving that which is eternal. When you start craving the Word of God, hearing it, taking it into your life, letting it change you, you get these things out of your life. Let me give you a homework assignment here. Are there one, two, three, four, five, or all five of these things in your life. Somehow, before the end of the day, I encourage you to sit down with your life notes and make a note of it. 
sit down and say, God, this is in my life. And I'm going to take this as the word of God. And I ask forgiveness in these areas. I want you to help me get these out of my life. I want you to, I want you to take the situation, take the people, and I turn it over to you, Lord. And the truth is, you or I may need to do this daily or even weekly for, for a while or a few whiles so that we can step out of it and walk away from these things that hinder us, that keep us from growing spiritually and keep us from growing and, and being used by God. Peter says that's allowing the Word of God to work in your life. That's how you grow. Now let me give you two myths about spiritual growth. Myth number one is we tend to think, like other things, that spiritual growth just happens over time. Spiritual ha growth just happens to, over time. Let me tell you, that's a myth. Little Walt grew up. I actually ended up being taller than my mom ever thought I was because my dad was, my daddy was about four inches shorter than I am. But the women in my mom's family were taller. But it's a myth that spiritual growth just happens over time. It doesn't happen just because we're born again. There's a lot of spiritual babies that have been around a while. You know what I mean. It doesn't just happen because we go to a church service or a chapel service. It doesn't just happen by the passing of time. You've probably heard it before that, that sitting in church or chapel doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Or another way of putting it is that if you're sitting in a hamburger joint, makes you a hamburger. You know, just being there doesn't, doesn't do it. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen because you worship every week. Think of how crazy it would be if you can't do this during the COVID pandemic right now, but if you had a local bank and they had, uh, they had a coffee pot there, and they served coffee, and you could go there, and you could sit, you know, and you think, if, what if you went there every Thursday afternoon from, from 3 to 5 until the bank closed, and the security guard kicked you out, and you sat there, and you sat in the bank from 3 to 5 every Thursday afternoon, and just sat there drinking the coffee, and enjoying watching and listening. Do you think that's necessarily going to help your finances? Probably not. The second myth is that spiritual growth is, is measured by how much we know. A lot of people think, and even in Jesus' time, they thought that they were, grow, they were mature spiritually because of what they knew, the, the, the head knowledge they had. Someone may say, well, I don't, just come, I don't just come to church or chapel, Walt. I take notes. I, take, I love those people. Those of you that have pens in your hands right now and you're taking those notes, I, I, I love that. I am one of those. I applaud that. I do everything I can to make it easy for you to remember what's set up here, to take notes to, with the life notes and the slides and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? If you just sit there and take notes and you don't do anything with them, if they just go home and, and I've even provided you little notebooks that you can put, file them away, but if they just go filed them away on your shelf at home, what does that do for you? Let me tell you one of the reasons I do life notes. Back when I was stationed at Coast Guard Training Center in Yorktown, the base XO commander, Scott Burho, he would weekly take his life notes. And his wife told me about this. Scott Burho would take those life notes and he would carry them every day in his pocket. And during the day when he had some free time, he would refer back to the notes from the message that I had preached the previous Sunday. Later, Scott went on to be an admiral in the Coast Guard, superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy. In fact, he actually... Uh, I ran into him the year I retired, and he was, retired, he was going to be president of a military academy in Virginia, and he offered me the job of being his chaplain there. But I turned it down because I'd already committed here to Sky Valley. But whenever I get tired of doing the extra work it takes to do the life notes and slides and stuff like that, I think of Scott Burrow, and I think of many other people that, that have told me how much the notes helped them. And so that's why 
I do them. It isn't just about how much we know. Consider the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 17. It's a story of a guy that comes to Jesus and says, Master, Rabbi, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, you know all the commandments. I'm sure I know all the commandments. I mean, I, I grew up here in, in Israel. My family's one of the prominent families here in Israel. We've been, we're, we're in synagogue every, every week. We're at the temple anytime we're supposed to be at the temple. And, and I know the law. I know the old commandments. I, I, I've kept all that stuff. I'm, I'm a pretty religious guy. And Jesus goes, let me tell you something. It has nothing to do with all that. Let me tell you, spiritual growth is do you know God and are you obeying what he's told you to do? Now remember, this is God in the flesh standing in front of the guy. And he says, let me tell you how to show this. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy says, well, I'm not going to do that. And Jesus said, well, then get out of here. Keep going to church, keep taking your notes, keep learning all the law, but until you come to the point where you actually do what God is telling you to do, you may as well just get away. And the disciples said, man, what's, what's going on? What's the deal with this? This guy's pretty wealthy. Jesus basically said, this guy doesn't know God even whenever he's standing in front of him. He claimed he knew God. He claimed he knew all the laws. He, he could probably win, win Bible trivia if he was playing it against you. But Jesus wanted to show him When God says to do something, you do it. You see, spiritual maturity is simply when God tells you to do something, you act on it. That's why Peter started this passage with saying, as obedient children, as obedient children. As parents, isn't that what we want to get out of our kids? Don't we want our children to be obedient? When mom or dad tell you to do something, you just do it? Doesn't happen all the time, does it? Peter's saying maturity isn't just about marking time. It doesn't just happen over time. It's not about how much you know. Let me tell you now two truths about spiritual maturity. The first is it is a result of daily decisions. Spiritual maturity is a result of daily decisions. Are you deciding each day to do what God has told you to do or not? That's how you know if you're growing. That's maturity. Is it God's word? And if it is, are you following what it says to do or to change? Or are you saying, well, let me tell you what's different about me, why I'm an exception here, why I, I, I get a pass on that. No, that's not what God's saying. Jesus said, if that's you, then walk away. Join the rich young ruler. This leads us to the second truth. Spiritual growth is measured by our actions more than by our beliefs. Spiritual growth is measured more by our actions than by our beliefs. You can believe there is a God. You can believe that this is the word of God. But if your actions don't show it, congratulations, rich young ruler. James 1.19 says this. It says, anyone who hears the word of God and doesn't do anything about it, you're like a person that, that looks in the mirror and immediately walks away and forgets what you see. Let me ask you, why do we look in the mirror? Now, there's a few people in the world who look in mirrors because they want to admire themselves. Carly Simon wrote a song about that or, or sang a song about that. But that's not what he's talking about here. Normally, we, we look at a mirror because we're, we're checking our appearance to make sure whatever. You know, do I need to get a, it's time to get a haircut. Do I have dirt on my face? Women, you know, with my lipstick. I mean, they even put mirrors. I always thought it was cool. On the end of those little lipstick things, they put a mirror on there. So you take the cap off and you put the lipstick on. That's a pretty cool idea. We, we do it so we can see if there's something that is amiss, something that we need to take care of. Do I need to trim my, trim my beard? We do it so that we can then take action. 
And James is saying, if you, if you look in the mirror, but yet you don't take action, it's worthless. It's, there's no practicality to that. James says, let's not just be hearers of the word, let's be doers of the word. So to wrap this up here, simply put, a, a growing Christian is daily committed to putting Christ first. A growing Christian is daily committed to putting Christ first. Every day I walk, I get into situations where I can ask God, what does your word say about this, about my action, about my love, about my speech, about my conduct, about my attitude, about how I interact with others? What does your word say about my honesty, my integrity, my character? Spiritual growth is, is simply putting God first, saying, God, I choose you on a daily basis rather than what I want to do. Secondly, a growing Christian is daily committed to putting others first. I ask God, how can I be about impacting others today? Is there an area I can do that in? I tell you, if you walk in these two simple things, you're going to find yourself growing spiritually. You're going to find the Word of God, the Spirit of God, starting to change you from the inside out. Normally, at the end of my life notes, I put what I call a challenge question. Last week, I kind of shifted it up. I put the question at the beginning as the title of the message, and then I had a statement at the end because we were talking about holiness, and I wanted to make a statement so people understand what holy really meant. But your challenge question this week is, are you maturing spiritually? And to help you, as I said, I've given you homework in these five areas. Look at these five areas Peter talks about. Remember, before this day ends, take those and do the assignment. Look at them before God say, are these things in my life? And, and if you want to stretch it out over the week, that's okay. The important thing is just do it. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.